Hi, this is Josh Pottinger and Jason Georgianis here today, and thank you for joining us. We're excited to have a couple of great guests on the show today. We've got Mark Ackler and Mert Ishidi, and they actually wrote an awesome book called Exit Right, and it's How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy. So before I get started, let me give you a little background on Mark. Mark's a managing director of Math Venture Partners, and he also teaches entrepreneurship at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business. And prior to math, Mark was the senior vice president of, of new business strategy and innovation for Redbox. He's a serial entrepreneur and has co-founded four companies as well as a, being a partner in an earlier venture called Kettle Partners. Mark has an undergraduate degree in social studies education from Purdue University. He's a boilermaker and a frequent speaker, resource, and big-time champion for the entrepreneurial community. And Mert, he's an author and entrepreneur from Istanbul, Turkey. He co-founded SwipeSense in 2011, a healthcare company, platform, and a technology platform to eliminate medical errors in the U U.S. hospitals. And in his decade as the CEO, SwipeSense raised $24 million, implemented its solution in over 100 hospitals and health systems, and was ultimately acquired by SC. Johnson. And Mert's goal in life is to help as many founders as he can. And to that end, he helped co-author Exit Right along with Mark, and he's an active member to multiple Techstars programs across the country. He lives in Chicago, Illinois, but you're going to find him today sitting over in London. <laughs> so actually, this is our second guest from London, actually, when we did our philanthropy, Jason. That's right. But how is Heathrow? When you flew in recently, it's in the news and not such a positive light these days. <laughs> it was easy going for me, so no issues from my end. Okay, good deal. Well, good. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really do appreciate it, and we know that you have a busy schedule, so we'll get after it here. Just to kick it off, guys, what prompted this whole thing, writing a book about this? Josh, Jason, thank you so much for, for having us both today. I had a difficult exit. You know, there's no other way to put this. Uh, Swipe Sense, as wild and successful of a ride it was, when it came down to sell the company, I basically found myself almost naked. I just didn't know. I'd never done this before. You know, we had raised money. We had found customers. We had done all the things that you fail and fail and fail until you get better at. But selling your company was one of those things where I had only one shot at getting it right. You know, it's a life-changing moment. And throughout the exit, Lots of ups and downs. We'll get into some of those details later in the conversation today. But Mark was sort of my sort of like higher conscience, if you will. He was on the other end of the phone when there was a crisis, when I was I was feeling like, man, this isn't going to happen. I would pick up the phone and Mark would talk me down from the from the ledge. And in the end of it, you know, when the deal was done, I was quite upset. It was supposed to be like this positive, successful, like energizing thing. And yet I was feeling quite down. So we had this very, very marking coffee chat with, with Mark. And Mark, actually, I'd love to turn it over to you to share the rest of the story. <laughs> so, Mur, not only was it a difficult transaction, but it happened in March of 2020. Right? So it, it happened literally the week before everything shut down. for Nuts. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it, it's the week before everything shuts down. The transaction's done. We're having coffee. And Mur... It's kind of grumbling. <laughs> I go, Mert. I go, man, like this is a moment of celebration. You should be happy. 
And I said, you know, in the spirit of giving back, in the spirit of helping, why don't you write it down? Why don't you write it down while it's still fresh in your mind so that the next time S.C. Johnson buys a tech company, I mean, S.C. Johnson can buy warehouses and CBT companies all day long. They could, they'd know they could do it in their sleep, but they'd never really bought a tech company and there's some nuances to it. And so I said, look, the next time S.C. Johnson buys a tech company, you can say, hey, guys, this is what I experienced. This is what I went through. Here's how we can make it better. And out <laughs> vomited <laughs> pages of notes. And I looked at that and we, we looked at each other and I realized, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of the lessons that Mert just learned the hard way. There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who could really benefit and value from those lessons. And I took a look around, Mert and I, and we just realized there's so many business books out there, but there's very few books about how to sell your company. And so we decided to go down this journey. And it was so much fun because our primary research, we went and we interviewed dozens of CEOs from big companies to small companies. And we asked them all sorts of questions about their exits. And we said, okay, give us the real story. Most people don't talk about exits because one, it's confidential. Two, you know, we're from the Midwest. Nobody likes to brag. And so if there's a good exit, no one wants to really shout it to the ceiling. And if it's a bad exit, people are a little bit embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. And so we said, okay, to these CEOs, tell us what really happened. Tell us if you had an adult child who was selling a company, all right, what would you tell them? Like, give us the real scoop. And we got great stories and insights and nuggets of wisdom. And we're big believers in empathy. So we also went to all the other stakeholders who surround a transaction. And we talked to M&A attorneys. And we talked to some of the best M&A attorneys in the country. And we asked them all sorts of stories and war stories about, you know, what makes a good transaction, what makes a bad transaction. You know, what are the best cases, best practices of working with clients? What makes a good client from your point of view and perspective? What makes a bad one? And we talked to bankers and we talked to heads of Corp Dev at a lot of the major tech companies in the Valley. And we talked to leaders at Facebook, Meta, at Instagram, at, a, at Apple, at Microsoft, Snowflake, and Atlassian, and a whole bunch of other companies. And we said to the leaders of Corp Dev, give us an example of one of your best transactions and why, what made it such a good transaction and give us an example of one that didn't work and many transactions don't work post-transaction and, and how come? And we asked the question, what do you wish CEOs knew before they came to see you? And so we got all of this really rich information and we put a book together. That's great. Thank you for a little bit of that color. I, when the book landed on our on our desk here, because you know UBS has a great collaboration with you guys, and and so we got this book, Exit Right, and I, I read it before Jason, and Jason was asking him asking me about it, and he was like, well, "What do you think about it?" I said, "Well, 
Man, I really like it. I really like it. I mean, these guys really did their homework. We're so you know passionate about helping business owners before the exit. And we've got a lot of good stuff to help them prepare themselves before that exit. And then after the exit is a very important phase too. But I think where you guys really hit the crosshairs here is during that phase, is the during phase. And we have several scenarios where I think your insight and perspective can be very helpful. And so for those listeners out there, when is the right time to to sell a startup? Well, we call this in the book, the local maximum. Essentially, the conventional wisdom of selling your company is, well, when you find the right buyer, that seems like the sort of the, the, the obvious answer. But in the life of a startup, given that things are growing and changing so fast, you always have to look back and say, well, could we create more value with the resources we have access to right now? Because if you can, the answer is probably to keep going. The partner that you're going to sell is likely going to be there and the company is going to be worth more. You're definitely going to be outperforming everything else that's out there, knowing what you know about the business. But at the same time, we believe that founders need to be honest with themselves. And you need to take stock with where things are going. And when you look at the company's performance, it's very easy to tell, well, things are going well, but we have some we have some mountains to climb ahead of us. Maybe there's a new competitor that maybe we need to change our product. Maybe we need to update our, our, our tech stack. Maybe we need to raise more capital. If you look ahead and you see mountains that you need to climb, maybe the right answer is to partner with a company essentially to help overcome those obstacles to achieve something greater down the road. The idea here is always, if I need more resources, where are those new resources are going to come from? Because maybe you should raise more capital or maybe it's time to, to, to sell the company. The other way of looking at this is that you've sort of exhausted the resources that you had available to you up until that point to create the most amount of value as possible. Now, that's sort of like the technical answer to this question. The spiritual, the emotional answer is also really important because when you're ready, you know, like as a, as a founder, this is a, this is a very, very difficult decision. And the personal burnout, the personal decisions that come into play, they really, really matter when it comes to selling your company. It's not one of those decisions you, you know, wake up and make on a Tuesday morning. There's a lot of factors that go into this. Now, founders have a tool in order to come to this decision. Years in advance. And Mark and I, while we were doing the research for this book, really zeroed in on this concept called the exit talk. And if you do have a clear and consistent practice of the exit talk, I think this decision comes a lot more easier given the number of stakeholders that are involved around the decision. So, Mark, I'd love to turn it over to you to introduce our listeners to the, to the concept of an exit talk. Yeah, thanks, Bert. So an exit talk, an exit is really interesting because most CEOs are very uncomfortable in talking about an exit. There's a stigma attached to it. They feel like if I raise, if a CEO feels like if I raise the subject, my investors might or my board members might feel like my heart's not in it, that I'm giving up. And so for that reason, CEOs don't really talk about it at the board very often. And board members, investors don't also talk about it. And they have an important point of view and perspective here. So we have this concept of an annual exit talk. Once a year, maybe the first board meeting of the year, you have a regularly scheduled section in your board meeting where the CEO and the board can talk about the exit. And, you know, in the beginning years, it's probably really pretty simple and straightforward. It's still too early. 
the business is growing, we've got a great technology lead. But over time, and as the years progress, as Mert mentioned, maybe the technology starts to slip a little bit and you need more reinvestment or competition's heating up or growth is starting to slow down. If you find that opportunity to define that local maximum, as Mert was referring to, you, the CEO can lead a strategic conversation about when is the right time and who is the best partner and who's the most likely way to drive the most, not only revenue, you know, not only the best sale price, but who's the best partner long-term for your employees, for your customers, for your, part, your strategic partners. And if you have that conversation, couple things happen. The first is you build alignment and it's not just what the CEO wants, it's your VCs too. I always tell entrepreneurs, when you take my money, I'm a VC during the day at Math Venture Partners, you also take our agenda. And our agenda is we need to make X return over Y timeframe. So if it's the first year of a venture funds investment, it's great, go ahead, take as much time as you want. But if it's year 10, well, you know, the clock is ticking and we got to get money back to our LPs and we're starting to feel a lot of pressure for a liquidation, an exit. So making sure you and VCs, we don't often talk to each other about where we are in the fund life cycle and what what our interests and needs are. So by having this open conversation, the hidden benefit is time and the luxury of time. Because if you understand who is the best potential partner and you give yourself enough time, one, you can start to build relationships with those partners and start to build trust. And Mert, I'm gonna turn it over to you in a second to talk about the importance of trust. And you can sort of fine tune your business to make, like, let's for example say you think you wanna sell in 18 months. Well. You can get your data room in order. You can make sure all your IP is, is tied up with a bow, that all the employees have signed their waivers, that your intellectual property and patents are appropriately filed. You can, if you think you're going to sell it to a strategic investor who cares more about top line, well, maybe you might want to tweak it a little bit and invest more in sales and marketing and drive top line growth. Or if you think you might have a financial buyer who cares more about EBITDA and profitability, or maybe you tighten the screws in the other direction and you focus a little bit more on profitability. And so by giving your, having this annual exit talk, you can build alignment, build trust, really think strategically about when that local maximum is and give yourself the benefit of time. And Mert, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about trust and the importance of trust in the process. Absolutely. Well, uh, the ultimate currency that closes deals is trust. I mean, think about the people in your life. And this is a good exercise for our listeners as well. I mean, think about the people you trust the most, the people you feel like you truly have your back. There's a couple common themes of all those folks. Number one, trust took time to form. Number two, you overcame stuff together, not just had good times. And third, you've come to respect their judgment. You know, when the chips are down, they tend to make better decisions. This is the kind of person you want to work with long term. You know, ideally in our startups, we yearn to create these environments of trust. Well, it's the same thing for the acquiring company. When they buy a startup, 
when they buy a tech company, they want to trust the people that's running that company. You know, they ideally look at it as a long-term relationship. And those long-term relationships are built with folks that you trust. So you have to start charging that trust battery ahead of time. You know, every single M&A leader we spoke to in large buyers, you know, whether that's Facebook, Amazon, you know, Google, they kept saying the same thing. Look, we buy companies from folks that we trust. Folks that we know, folks that can go to distance with us. Because the reality is it's very, very rare a company buys another company just for that moment in time. It's typically towards a longer-term objective, towards a greater sense of value that's down the road. It's going to take effort to get there. Now, I'm not saying in every scenario the CEO has to be part of that vision. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But overall, there's a larger objective that needs to be met. And you only get, end up in that destination with folks that you trust. So without trust, there is no deal. At least there's no optimal deal for, for the folks that are involved. Well, and I would also add that the trust battery, all deals have bumps in the road. All deals have moments where the deal is hanging by a thread and it's trust between parties that oftentimes are the difference between deals happening or not happening. But this also, I think, Merck, I think this also leads us down the path of FAIR and FIT alignment, integration, and rationale. And what makes for a good deal? You want to, like, share some wisdom on that? Well, happy to do that, but let's turn it back over to Josh and Jason to see if they have other things they want to get to. I think fair is a fantastic thing to go to next, but they might have other questions for us, Mark. <laughs> one, one thought that comes to mind is your You speech. guys are so no, boring. I mean, just, God. <laughs> I mean, this stuff is just so boring for you guys. Well, I mean. You're touching on how the founders can optimize for the long term and striving for this in quotes, utopian experience where there's mutual trust and it's kumbaya. But at the end of the day, we are speaking about negotiating for the best possible outcome uh, for the for the company and, and its employees. And I have to imagine from time to time, there are pitfalls that come about, some perhaps foreseen, perhaps more often unforeseen. So, when you're finally when when the dog finally catches its tail and next thing you know there's an LOI in front of you and there's a interest from a strategic interest from a financial buyer whatever the case may be what are some of those pitfalls that that founders or the the executive team ought to try to avoid when they're looking at that term sheet even though there's tremendous trust and there's a feel good feeling what are those negatives that you guys have either experienced personally or heard from the uh, various folks that you interviewed? Yeah, that, boy, that's a great question. And I'm going to pivot a little bit and then turn it over to Merck for, to answer that question in fair. And at the end of the day, the real question is, how are you maximizing value? And are you maximizing value for yourself? Or are you maximizing value for your shareholders, your employees, and we're, you know, we're big believers in building long-term relationships, the value of relationships over time. And one of the questions we, we ask CEOs is that, hey, when this transaction is done, are your employees going to want to work for you again? Are your, your executive team, you know, will your customers follow you? Will your investors want to invest in your next company? And so life is not a zero-sum game, even though it might seem that way sometimes. And part of the way we figured that out 
is by coming up with this acronym, this framework that we call FAIR. So, Mert, you want to lead us through that? Absolutely. And this also is a really neat parallel to, you know, what's the best path to, to negotiating? Because, you know, Josh, your original question was, you know, what are some of the mistakes that, that founders make? You know, what we've often seen is that rather than sort of immediate tactical blunders, is there's actually a lot bigger strategic problems when it comes to the exits. You know, these are the things that impact your price by magnitudes of 10. You know, of course, you're going to get better at negotiating over time. The more you do this, the more you study negotiating. And that's a skill to be learned. But let's just face the reality. Your buyers are way better than you at this. They do this for a living. You know, they buy a company a quarter. You're going to, you know, the Mount Rushmore of entrepreneurs and maybe five, six, I mean, seven companies during the entirety of their of their careers. The playing field is just not level. If you're interested in like learning how to negotiate, there's wonderful books like Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss or Getting More by Stuart Diamond. I mean, there's a whole deep hole of negotiating that founders can dig in on, on their own time. What we'd like to point to is sort of strategically, if we find the right partner, if we find the right buyer for the business, it just so happens that they're the ones who are willing to pay more for the business to begin with. So let's focus on answering that question. Who's the right partner? Who are we selling this company to? What sort of tells us that this is the right company that we should be working with? And to answer that question, we came up with a framework called the FAIR framework. It stands for four elements of every successful exit. Fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. FAIR for short. Fit stands for the cultural fit between the two companies. Amazon, Zappos, great cultural fit. Time Warner, AOL, horrible fit. Wasn't going to work out to begin with. Fit is sort of, are you making decisions similarly when there are no written down rules, you know, culturally? Do you get along when you sit next to this person uh, on a plane? Next is alignment. You know, we talked about the importance of the exit talk. That's sort of for internal alignment. Your responsibility as a CEO during the exit is to ensure alignment from the other side. You know, is the chief revenue officer saying that seeing the same thing as the chief executive officer? Is the head of product that's going to be ingesting your technology aligned with the CFO in terms of the, the revenue goals that, that you're signing up for? That alignment is also your job to ensure during the exit. The third element is integration. How are these two companies are going to come together? Are we keeping our team? Are we giving them raises? Are we overlapping our technology? Are we going to have access to more marketing resources or sales resources? Now, this is extremely important. It's sort of like the ugly child of, of every M&A deal because people just leave this after the deal is done. And yet it's so critical because you have to talk about this during the exit. You're going to leave money on the table. You know, when a company is sold, it's never for like some headline number. It's typically, hey, here's X dollars and, you know, Y over another period of time. You know, VCs and, and bankers don't really like that because, they, you know, they want to have as much of the, the return as much as possible in the time of the exit. You don't want to sort of give your destiny out to the hands of a company that, you know, you no longer have a say in. But the reality is if you don't ask these tough questions around integration during the, the exit process, well, what if you don't have resources? What if you have a revenue goal that you have to hit and yet you don't have marketing dollars to actually achieve that? That has to be part of the conversation. Now, fourth, and perhaps the most important of these elements is the rationale. Now, can you explain to your grandmother why these two companies getting together makes the, all of the sense in the world? Is one plus one equal 100? Now, the typical mistake we see founders strategically making at this stage is they'll start talking about, you know, Oh, look at, look at our, our, our revenue. Look at our, we have amazing, you know, customer success. We have, you know, little to no churn. Look, everything is amazing in our company. They start talking about their company. 
And the reality is, if the oil company wants to buy your house, they don't care about the countertops. There's oil. You know, you should talk about the oil. You should talk about what the oil company wants to do with the land, with your house. So to a startup founder, how that translates to is if they want to buy your startup, stop talking about what you've done in the past. Understand what the buyer wants to do with your business to impact their numbers. You know, if we have this fictional business that improves checkout rates, you know, let's say we solve the, the abandoned cart problem. Okay, you might have a million in ARR. Maybe we, we, we value that company at eight times revenue, even 10 times revenue. Wow, amazing, $10 million. You might feel like you're getting a deal of a lifetime because somebody's willing to pay 10 times your annual revenues. What's a 1% improvement in checkout rates worth to Amazon? What's that worth to Shopify? I can assure you it's a whole lot more than $10 million per year. It's probably worth in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. So if you're def this defining your value just based on what you, you have done in the past, you're leaving money on the table. The real move here is to understand your buyer's business so well that you can make a mathematical calculation about how you're going to impact their numbers and their KPIs moving forward using your technology, the way in which your technology is going to plug a strategic hole. So I know we talked, you know, sort of philosophical concepts in here, but I have to assure you, like, if you follow along these, you know, four elements, it kind of doesn't matter how you conduct yourself on the moment to moment. If you, you know, oh, you will understand what reps and warranties are. Ask your lawyer. Like, that's not how you maximize the deal. You have to find the right partner, and that's how you really get to the right outcome when it comes to these uh, deals. Mark, any thoughts you want to add to this? Well, I was going to hop in real quick. As you were talking, it reminded me of the example that you made with the Instagram acquisition and how successful that was and how the deal was done, because I think it combines several of the elements that you've talked about trust, identifying the impact of a technology into the acquiring company's platform and what that could potentially do and how it impacted their bottom line five years later. Maybe you can walk the listeners through that. No question about it. Now, in that deal, we got the story from Gary Johnson, who was the, the head of M&A at, at Meta at the time. You know, the deal was done over steaks and ice cream in Mark Zuckerberg's house. <laughs> you know, Kevin Systrom and, and Mark Zuckerberg sat down and Kevin Systrom initially asked for $2 billion for the business. I mean, this was a business with like 14 employees, you know, 30 million users, $0 in revenue, and he asked for $2 billion. Now, when the deal happened, I remember, you know, just as much as the next person, I thought, you know, Mark Zuckerberg lost his mind. You know, this is a company that had just gone public. You know, we have this young CEO who's running this mega valuable company. And he ended up paying a billion dollars for this business with, with what to show for exactly. I mean, it didn't make sense. It wasn't making any money. There was this collective laughter heard around the tech world. Well, we're here to tell you, Facebook stole it. They stole it for a billion dollars. Because in 2020, I mean, I don't even know what the numbers are right now. In the last two years, it must have exploded with given the, 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 the growth in, in these markets. But in 2020, they made like $19 billion off of the advertising revenue from, from Instagram. I mean, it was an outstanding outcome. And Instagram is one of the, the shining lights now. I would say, you know, a quarter of their, of their revenues right as a public company, arguably driving a quarter of the market cap of, of Facebook. And it has incredible growth and, and future, future bandwidth, bandwidth ahead of it. Now, the reality is 
Instagram wouldn't have become today's Instagram if it weren't for Facebook. And Facebook wouldn't have become the public company it is right now if it weren't for Instagram. The genius of that acquisition was both sides coming together and adding value to each other. Facebook understanding the future of social was, was mobile. And Instagram understanding that the, the real way to supercharge your growth was to partner with a company like Facebook. So, Murray, awesome observations. I just want to add one more thing. We we're talking about sort of tactical execution for a second. I know we've been talking strategic, but there's one thing that many entrepreneurs fall into a trap during a deal. So they get an LOI, a letter of intent, and they're so excited because, oh my God, this is the moment and this larger company is willing to give me X amount of dollars. And letters of intent typically are much shorter and there's not a lot of information. And really, you're just covering the big headline. The big headline is how much is are they going to pay for it? Well, here's the question. Once that letter of intent is done, you pretty much lose whatever leverage you have because the larger company, the acquiring company, who's going to write the deal docs? Well, it's going to be the acquiring company and their attorneys. And how are their attorneys going to interpret any deal point that's not spoken for or about in the LOI? Well, they're going to do it. They're going to interpret that in the favor of the larger company. And so the minute that LOI is signed, there's so much pressure to close and you get deal drunk. But if there's not important decisions to be made that are articulated in the LOI, boy, you're putting yourself in a hole. So, for example, Mert, this is something that you went through personally. Okay, maybe talk about not your situation, but generically, like what, how is that interpreted? For example, executive compensation, executive agreements, those types of things. Absolutely. I mean, look, the reality is the buying company knows how this works. And unless you explicitly demand certain things, well, their lawyers are going to interpret it in the best way that's left out in the as open for interpretation. Frankly, that's their job to do so. There's nothing wrong with wanting the best thing for your clients. That's what you pay them for. But the reality is this doesn't always leave the best taste in the mouth of the folks that are involved. I mean, in my case, we left until the very end, you know, compensation for, for executives. Now, look, we're not going to cry over already a good situation. You're selling the company. It's awesome. Like celebrations all around. So the deal still got done. But boy, I wish I had known some of the things that they were going to ask us to sign up for literally earlier than a week that the, the, the closing docs were signed. And, you know, in the end of that, you will find yourself in a position where, look, if I push back too hard, we're a week from signing. I've already communicated to everybody the deal is going to happen. Now I'm in that position to hold up everything and not say yes to the deal where everybody's going to look at me and go, dude. You're holding this up just because you want X, Y, or Z or whatever that is. And in the meanwhile, if I don't you know, raise my concerns, well, we're signing up for something that I don't feel great about. So it's a lose-lose situation. Now, you can easily avoid this by raising your hand in the term sheet process and saying, hey, when are we going to see this? What are you going to do with that? Am I going to hold on to my team? What's going to be my compensation? What am I signing up for? Is there going to be an earnout period? Whatever that is. You have to ask. You have to over-communicate. And that doesn't necessarily make you weaker. That makes you stronger. You know, typically when it comes to, you know, handling these negotiations, the less you speak and the more you listen, the better it is. You know, founders are typically very inclined to be, you know, 
going at it, sell, sell, sell. You only have one mode to, to sort of execute in these things. Stop. You know, be patient. Do more of the listening. You've got two of these. And it really ends up serving you really, really well. You gain more by asking smart questions than sort of trying to maneuver your opponent and sort of seeing this as a, you know, win-lose situation. It's ultimately a partnership. That's all you're trying to do. Lay out the best possible partnership that's ahead. Would you say the same applies during the fundraising timeframe? There's a ton of parallels in here. There's a ton of parallels in here. Well, ultimately, fundraising is seeking resources to achieve a greater outcome. You know, no one's investing for the business that is today. People want to invest so that the company that they're buying shares in are going to be more successful. Therefore, their investment is worth more. That's a very, very similar process to an acquiring company. Now, there's, of course, clear differences in investors. There's not just one investor. Typically, you have a cap table with lots of other investors. You know, people sort of like pull around the, the, the investment. But it is true that people end up investing in companies where they trust the founders. That's why it's so much easier for second-time founders to go out and fundraise versus folks who just are out of school and doing this for the first time. Trust is a real currency when it comes to fundraising as well. Now, you're not going to worry about a plan of integration and so on and so on, but boy, you better recognize that you need to be aligned with your board in terms of where you're going to go. You better be aligned with your investors in terms of what company you're going to build. So there's no you know, hard feeling six months, a year from now. It's the beginning of a long journey, very similarly to an exit. And founders that are great at this actually are pros at running both parallel processes in, in parallel. They'll basically have both options in their hands. If they don't like the M&A deal in front of them, they'll have a financing deal already and vice versa. If they don't like the, the terms on the financing, they might go and say, okay, great, we've reached the local maximum, it's time to sell the business. This is, of course, rather difficult to do, and it's a very, very, very fine balance. So it's not typically something we recommend to, to founders to exercise and yet focus on what is my objective? Do I have trust around the partners that I have around the table? And am I doing the best thing for the mission of the, of the company? This is sort of our general direction for founders when they think through fundraising as it pertains to the exit. And, and let me take, so yes, Sam. So let me just take that one step further in the beginning of the journey. So one of the things that we, this book is about how to sell your company, but one of the things that we really focus on is that the decisions you make at the beginning of your journey around equity have an outsized impact at the end of your journey. So who you give equity to, if you give equity to founders who maybe leave and there's debt equity on the cap table, or who you choose as an investor. Now, I know most entrepreneurs don't have, it's hard to get VC money, but not all VCs are created equal, and there's good investors and there's bad investors, or investors that you share values with that you want to be in the foxhole with for 10 years, and there's other investors that you don't. And, you know, at the end, when there's an exit, there's something called a waterfall distribution of proceeds. Okay, so there's X amount of money. Who gets what? And what we try to say to entrepreneurs is, look, it's not about how much money you raised. It's like you don't get a badge for raising more money. <laughs> it's not about how high the valuation is. The higher the valuation, the higher the bar before the common shareholders get any. And so at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what are the common shares worth in a waterfall distribution. And so we really encourage entrepreneurs to be very thoughtful about Holding on to that equity, every share is precious, and who you partner with really matters. 
That's good. Thank you. Talking about the investor side of the equation, we're you know we're we're getting towards the end of our time here, and again, I want to be respectful to everyone's schedule. So, let's wrap it up by talking about the four different types of buyers. We've got financial, competitive, public, and strategic. Maybe one of you can take this one, or both of you can take it, and just kind of give us the, the benefits and maybe drawbacks of of each of these potential acquirers. Mark, I'll jump in with the the financial and competitor buyers. And how about you take on the public offering and the strategic buyer? Sure. Perfect. So first, let's talk about a a sort of a unique kind of buyer, the financial buyers, the PE firms, if you will. This is uh, not exactly what we mean by by an exit. It for sure can feel like an exit because you're getting real liquidity, investors are getting out. But there's a very, very straightforward rationale. The PE firm is buying the company to sell at a later date. You know, it's sort of, it could be part of a roll-up. There could, of course, be strategic elements around it. But it's very much a financial transaction, buying low and and, and selling high. There's really no plan to integrate this to some greater organization for it to live there permanently. It is going to end up changing hands. It might change executive teams. It might look completely different. You might hold on to this company for a while before you sell it. You might even use it as a cash cow and just sort of work off the the earnings of of the company. But the reality is the acquirers are doing the math on a fundamentally financial basis. This isn't typically a, a great outcome. However, even a worse outcome is the competitive buyer. I mean, it basically means that you've lost the, the battle. You know, one of your competitors are coming in and, and acquiring the company, typically in the form of either an acquire or they're acquiring the assets. In other words, some other company essentially is saying, hey, throw in the towel. We're going to take over from now on. These are typically not great exits, specifically because there's typically a lot of overlap. And it likely means that the acquiring company is essentially buying the, the, the company for, for its scraps. You know, they might lay off the team the day the, the deal closes. The returns are not great for the investors. There might be a preference stack and basically investors might be made whole and you as the founder can be walking away with basically nothing. So these two options, the competitor buyers and the PE buyers, they're sort of like lower in the totem pole, if you will. But there's, of course, much, much more positive outcomes, namely by via a public offering and a, and a strategic buyer. And Mark, I'd love to turn it over to you to, to dig into further into those. Yeah, so a strategic buyer is like whispering sweet nothings in my ear. <laughs> you know, it's a great outcome if you can find it going back to rationale. If you can find a rationale where one plus one equals 100, maybe plugging in your technology into the tech stack of the larger company, maybe it's selling your product through the much larger sales, either their own direct sales force or channel partnerships, getting access to the customer base of the much larger company. Like It's an opportunity to really give you the resources and access to a much larger company. A strategic buyer can be wonderful or not. There's plenty of strategic partners (laughs) that fall apart because the fit part, it's not a good alignment. It's not good integration. It's not a good fit. So we really like to focus in on the rationale. I'll give you an example. We were talking about Instagram and Meta. Another example is my partner, Troy. He had a a development shop and he built a little bit of an inventory management system for Hyatt Hotels. He had the rights to it. He was trying to get Medline as a customer, large medical equipment company. And Medline, when he pitched them, they said, yeah, we, we like that, but we want to buy the whole company. 
Troy said, well, we're not for sale. Medline offered him 2x revenue, which for a dev shop was pretty good. And Troy said, no, no thanks. And it went up and went up. And finally, it was 5x revenue. And Troy thought, oh, man, these guys are dumb. If they're going to pay me 5x revenue, of course I'm going to do it. What Troy didn't know was the rationale. He didn't understand why Medline wanted to buy him. And it turns out that Medline went to their hospital customers and said, we have this new inventory management system. And if you take your one-year contract to buy supplies from us and make it a three-year contract, we'll give you the inventory management system for free. And in that first year of operations, they drove over $100 million of new incremental business. And if you think about that across five years of new of $100 million plus, I mean, at Medline's multiples, that's got to be a billion dollars worth of value that they paid my partner, Troy, like a teeny tiny percentage of. So Troy thought he had a great deal, but what he didn't understand was the rationale, the value. And that's how, for the larger strategic partner, I have three rules of empathy, which is it's not about you, do your homework, and bring a gift, add value. So the question is, how do you add value to the larger strategic partner? It's not about you, it's about them. And you help them grow sales in a meaningful, material way. And you help them land and expand, selling incremental revenue to existing customers. Can you help them with retention? Man, if you can improve retention rates of the larger company's customer base, you're worth exponentially more. So the last piece of it is going public. And, you know, in today's marketplace, going public has its value for sure. I mean, it's a way of driving significant revenue and at higher multiples, but it also has its challenges. Being the CEO of a publicly traded company means you are selling to a publicly traded company, means you are at the whims of the market and the focusing on quarterly reporting and shorter term in your orientation. And so you got to make sure that it's a, it's a good fit spiritually for you as well. as something that you want to sign up for because it's not easy. In fact, we're seeing a lot of significantly larger companies raising private money, not going public, companies that are large enough to be public but have chosen not to because the regulatory challenges can be considerable. Yeah, you see public companies going back private too. Well, excellent. Well, Mark and Murr, thank you so much. Jason, I really do appreciate the time that you spent with us today and and, and giving us some insight into your own your own experiences and also a little information on the book that we highlighted today. And so speaking of that, we just wanted to let the listeners know that if you're interested in a copy of the Exit Right book, send us a note. You can send us a note at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com and we'll shoot you a copy. And thank you, hey, Josh and Jason. Thank you so much. Great questions. But I want to shoot one right back at you guys. UBS has been such a fantastic partner for us. There's always the question to when should you talk to a financial planner? And our perspective is way before you think there's going to be an exit. There's important value that you guys provide in terms of planning and thoughtfulness 
And I just want to give a plug to you and to UBS and a recommendation to the entrepreneurs out there. Don't wait until after the exit. Begin that relationship sooner. Well, I appreciate that little plug there. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> now, we uh, we love this space. We really do. I mean, if you, if you see our website and just everything that we talk about, we think about, it's really all about helping those owners of privately held companies prepare themselves and both kind of mentally, personally, financially, and also the company. And when you go through an exit like this, it's an incredibly stressful time, just like Mert was talking about in the very beginning. And so it's not the time to be, you know, digging into some heavy lifting financial and estate planning when you're in the middle of a deal. It's not the optimal time either because valuations are are much higher. And so I appreciate you mentioning that and we would agree, you know, get on it early. <laughs> so the last thing I would tell you too is is we wrote the book to give back and to help and it's been such an honor. We're very grateful to be able to talk to you and to your listeners and to entrepreneurs out there. And if there's any entrepreneurs out there who we can help, please feel free to reach out to Mert and I. We're available on LinkedIn and we're always glad to help if we can. All right. Well, thank you, folks. And Mark, enjoy Chicago and, and Mert. You're in London for a little bit and I think you're heading over to Istanbul. So safe travels and enjoy your family. Thank you. Thank you all. Wonderful to be with you here today. Bye-bye. Thank you both. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.